Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their travel trailer, which they have nicknamed Bessie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Thanks, and welcome back to our podcast. It's Rick here this week, filling in for Alara, who is knee-deep in taxes as we speak. So, you have to put up with me this week. Sorry about that. For those of you that are into fiber, the New York State Sheep and Wool Festival will be back live next month in Rhinebeck. This festival was first held in 1972 and is one of the largest annual gatherings of fiber arts enthusiasts in the U.S. It is attended by knitters, crocheters, hand spinners, and growers of natural fiber-producing livestock, which includes sheep, goats, angora rabbits, llamas, musk oxen, and alpacas. This year, it will be a combination of in-person and online, so please go to their website at sheepandwool.com to find out more. This week's podcast is from the 2019 Festival, and we will be speaking with Kim and Jack Mastriani from Maple Frost Farm in Langdon, New Hampshire. They raised Lester Longwell sheep and were attracted to the breed for its all-purpose characteristics. But what appealed to them most was their connection to American history. As Kim will let you know a little bit about her past and her dear old Uncle George. Here is Kim and Jack Mastriani from the 2019 New York State Sheep and Wool Festival. So if you would please introduce yourselves and tell me why you're here. Uh, Kim Mastriani, Jack Mastriani. And we are here because we raise Lester Longwolves and we've been coming to Rhinebeck for 12 years now? 2007, yeah, 12 years. 12 years yeah. now, doing the breed display for most of that um, to promote the breed. Okay, so what is the name of your farm and where is it? Maple Frost Farm. It's in Langdon, New Hampshire. And you know, One of the things about this breed is that not only are they rare, but the breed has a real connection to American history in a lot of different ways. And we got interested in the breed for different reasons. Um, one is that the breed has very good all-purpose characteristics, uh, but, but also there's a real story to tell about the breed that connected to us in different ways. So we just felt attracted to the breed. We looked at a lot of different breeds and we, we finally settled on this one. Yeah. yeah the all-purpose characteristics are one of the reasons why they came to be a focus of American Absolutely. So they were, they, they took something that took a long time. They have a big mutton market. Took something that took you know, four years to get to market that was coarse boned, had a low carcass ratio and had a fleece and turned it into something that could get to market in two years with a fabulous carcass ratio and a fantastic fleece. And so the sheep were exported all over the world. Um, the guy that developed them, Robert Bakewell, was way ahead of his time. I'm sure you guys have talked some of, on some of that history, but these sheep went all over the world and they influenced breeds all over the world. We liked that history part of it. I thought that was really cool. We knew we wanted a fleece sheep, something that had a great fiber. I love the curls. 
um, the shine that comes off of these guys when you're shearing them, it's like a Christmas present. You, they look kind of grubby and burned out, and then you start shearing them, and it's, it just sparkles. And that shine stays with the fleece no matter what you do with it. So they're just a really cool breed. And we live in New Hampshire, so we wanted a hardy breed, a breed that didn't require a lot of maintenance or coddling in cold weather. And this breed... They've been fabulous. ...fits the bill very, very well. And the, uh, the thing that Kim was talking about, so an all-purpose breed, so they were developed as this all-purpose breed by Robert Bakewell, the farmer. And in the 1800s, American agriculture, like our American society, got so specialized that things that were general purpose or all purpose fell out of favor to things that were the best at one particular thing. So there were literally hundreds of breeds of animals and types of apples and on and on that disappeared. Um, and they pretty much disappeared in the 1900s. So it was a real uh, struggle to try to bring them back to the country where Colonial Williamsburg did a lot to, to bring them back. If it wasn't for them, then we wouldn't have any of these sheep today. So we're talking about the all-purpose breed concept. Mm -hmm. Now, Bakewell was the first one that really started the whole thing where I want a trait and I'm going to breed for that trait, right? right? Yeah. Genetic selection. Yes. Yeah. So that's an irony that you have the sheep and yet originally it was braid. I mean, this has kind of started the whole thing of production agriculture in a way. It did, and in that time period, you had a better market for things that could do multi-purpose. Um, and, and at the time, you could argue that these guys were the best, the biggest, the fastest, the finest in the market. So Until other breeds in the 1800s emerged right. that were better at coming up to maturity faster. But one Bigger thing, purposes. maybe not better. One thing. Like a Navajo churro right. might be better at living in 120 right. degree weather. Right. Right. Which is the story of American society in the 1800s. Yeah. It's you the story of Specialization. Yes. Right. Specialize or die. You know, you've got breeds that, that can go to market in six months. Not so much with these heritage breeds. You've got to be a little more patient. You've got to let them grow out. You know, if you want, they're not really fully mature till they're almost four years old. I mean, you can start breeding them far before that, but as far as size goes and weight gain, and you know, so it takes it still takes them longer than the kind of sheep we have now that are trying to get to market fast. So it's tough to, um, it's hard to get people from a financial standpoint to appreciate that. You know, what that they're getting at the end of the time that you, you know, put into them. Yeah, that's one thing that we've been talking with people about is the cost that it takes to actually get a, a, an animal or product to market yeah. is not always translated to the American consumer because we think, okay, it just comes there. Right. And yet... Yeah, they don't see that whole supply chain. Yes, and yet economic viability is a really difficult thing if you have a whole different animal, especially, you know, say... We're not political by anything, but if the USDA says you have to have your cow to, you know, no older than two by the time it goes to slaughter, that's how it has to be, and you have a different kind of cow, I can see we're having a sheep that has to get to four before it's put on the tour. If, right. the, if those slaughter requirements are, are lesser, that makes it really tough to raise this thing. Right. Well, and you can send them earlier, and not, it's not that you can't, but they don't have that same rate of growth, you know, as that other sheep do. The, the more commercial market 
meat lambs do. So it's it's there. It's just not that fastest, biggest, quickest to market. Yes. Anymore. Yes. You know, like, yes. So you have a, a consumer that says, "Oh, my my butterball turkey should cost X number of dollars per pound," and yet that thing went to market half the time that that other heritage breed does, and there's half the weight yeah. to it. Right. So that that's going to translate to a cost somewhere. Yeah. It does. So it does. so you lose diversity. Yes. So the, yeah, these breeds fall the out of favor. And and if you ever run into an issue, the biggest concern is that you get into something, if you've, if you've limited your gene pool on your mass commercial market, if something goes wrong, then you've wiped out a vast amount of your commercial market, you know, as, as opposed to, well, not as opposed to, trying to keep these guys alive, trying to keep these heritage breeds supported and, and in the market helps keep that diversity out there. I mean, and we, we have a small apple orchard, just Homestead Orchard, and in apples, there are hundreds and hundreds of varieties of apples that are gone, that can never come back, that are gone forever, that existed, documented in the 1800s, and once they go away, that's it. So we, we came down to about four or five varieties of apples that were grown in this country from the 50s, post-war era, till let's say 10 years ago, and finally now we're realizing, boy, that really limits the, the selection. You know, you mentioned apples a couple times, really funny, because we talked to Kerry Fowler and he said, see this book? And he showed us a book that was this thick on the side of the table. He said, all this is is a listing of apple varieties in New York State. That's Just in New York State. Just in New York yep. State. And this whole book. The Apples of New York. The Apples of New York. Yeah. Because everybody that raised their apple that was locally adapted, that had a different adaptation yep. to climate and a different taste and a little mm -hmm. different soil, soil, it tastes a little different. Yeah. You know, burgundy wine is burgundy for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've lost the, the breadth of the taste and the richness in right. the race. So That's it, part of the attraction with the rare breeds. Yes is to keep that diversity going. And there's also, well, a personal connection with, with your history. Oh, well, that was part of it. That was Yeah, that, that was a little, that was part of the attraction. So, so no, my, my, the family story is, allegedly, um, no, my, I, we're related to George Washington's sister. So the idea that George Washington, Uncle George, had these sheep, at Mount uh, Vernon. <laughs> you know, made it even more appealing for us personally to get into the breed. We waited this long in this conversation to drop that. To drop Uncle George. Thing. I gotta yes. drop a name. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of ironic. He also had one of the breeds that was foundation, that's a foundation breed in the donkey world. He did the Mammoth Jack. He did the Mammoth Jacks, yeah. And so, or he was strongly contributing to yeah. that, which in many ways is reflective of your sheep because they took four or five or however many different kinds of donkey right. and combine them for a purpose in this country because they wanted big mules, right? Mm -hmm. so they wanted, they needed big mules and they bones. needed something that was going to cross with a draft horse and come up with a mule that was going to outpull anything. Yes, yeah. and in many ways that's really ironic because he's a part of that mm -hmm. and he was the beginning of the melting pot. And in a way, the sheep came in that same way, and the sheep are having the same issues as the donkey do. What is, yep. what does, what is the purpose of this thing, and is this in this modern world? Yeah, where's its value and where's its place? Yeah. And, and it's there. It's hard to explain it. 
so it's it, such it, a part of the culture and our heritage. Yeah, it, it's not only a connection to the past, but it's also you know hope for the future. Yeah. So it, it's, it connects both ways. So that's one of the questions that I always used to ask. Do you think that the concept of heritage breeds is a past concept or a future concept, and why? Both. That's a great it comes question. From the past. That's a great question, but I, I think it's very much related to the, the future diversity of our animals, our plants, of the ecosystem. Yeah. So to me, that's it's linked to the past, yes, but it also has everything to do with future diversity. And monocultures, are, they're, they're just not good. We, we know that. A lot of research. So you have a sheep that was specifically bred for a purpose and selected as in many ways representative of the thing that George Washington did with many other animals. And yet you've come back to that now, and they're having problems. So how do you think in the future that the sheep that you breed might be usable in the future world? Do you think that this has a place? Do you think it's taste? Do you think it's wool? Do you think it's the just-in-case factor? I think it's all three. I think people are discovering... I mean, look at this. Look at what's going on here. 45,000, whatever, however many people are showing up this weekend. Fiber arts. And, and there's so many different avenues to get into with fiber arts, one of which is getting into breed-specific yarn and finding those different characteristics and finding what you like and how it handles and why it's different and why that's interesting. And that's a whole avenue that thousands of artisans are getting into, knitters, spinners, anybody that's into fiber arts. Yeah, and to that point specifically, we've noticed the last, this is our, let's say, 12th, 13th year here, yeah the last several years, an increasing amount of, of young women in, in their 20s are coming up greater and greater numbers every year that are fiber artists yeah. living in New York City or other places, and they are passionate. They, yeah, yeah, they're not they're, farmers. They're not in farm country. <laughs> they're living in Brooklyn or Manhattan or but Chicago. But they're into the breed. They're into the idea that each one of these has value and a different value and brings something else to the table, and no pun intended, brings something else to the table. That's the other aspect of it, is that you're... The farm-to-table movement is vibrant these days, and they're looking for interesting things. And so, you know, the, the Food Network is helping rare breeds. When you think about it, the idea that every you know things can be unique and interesting, and it's worth the extra time maybe, and to find something that's new and that might taste just a little better. Well, I would say that in there's there's a couple of different things I see occurring within the within the people that are 30 and under. One of them is the fact that they've lived in a very transitory world. It's a very short-lived flies right past you, text in and right. out, don't talk to others. There's not a whole lot of connection in that way. There's not a whole lot of permanence in that in that concept. And they also have that distance between them and everybody else. Yeah, the distance the between other things. And things are moving so quickly that things are homogenous. It's not like the people in China look like they looked, you know, 50 years ago. They might be wearing jeans now, and yet now that was not the case. You might have people in Russia that don't look like people in Russia 100 years ago because it's ubiquitous with the advent of the Internet and things. So I think people have a tendency to search for meaning. And if you're under 30 and you want to search for meaning and you start with yourself, what is it that makes me me? 
the, I mean, the millennials. The, the millennials. millennials have a value yes. system. Yes. You've described it perfectly. So yeah. when you when you think back, and you do you get that little piece of you that says, "Wow, George Washington, that's that's something I I can look back and put an anchor on because that's pretty solid." I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> no, but it's a point but it's, in time. It's a that's point measurable. time. It's a connection. It's an interesting link to say, yeah. The, connect the dots coming forward and seeing, you know, looking at an animal like this and looking at that history and knowing what that history is, I think just adds to that, brings something else to life in the whole process, you know. Yeah. And it connects you to what's real. That, that, that's the thing is that in our society, we're so dislocated from reality, yes. truncated, um, the no implications comes from the of store, that are, right? It doesn't come from it, the couch. This right. has from never happened before in yes. the history of humankind. Yes to have everybody just connected through technology to everybody yes. else in the world. And the implication of that is this dislocation from nature is, is loneliness, because it's been a part of our ancestry for millennia. And one of the reasons why I think you get, with millennials and more and more people, uh, a connection to, like, the sheep is it connects to things that are, that are real. You know, wool is its a natural fiber. So there's a positive trend towards becoming more connected to what's real. And I would argue... Maybe it's an antidote to technology. Yes. I would argue that if you have a sheep that takes four years to get to maturity instead of two, it does anchor you a little more. Yeah. It puts you in a, in a place it's a different for time long frame. enough to sit and think about it yeah. rather than just this thing that comes and goes quickly. Right. No, it's definitely a different... Time frame. Yeah. Yes, it is. And Pretty you have to work with nature if you work with sheep. I mean, you you, yeah. you are you, you have to not only work with nature but try to understand nature and what nature is telling you, or else you're not going to be as effective uh, of a shepherd. Yes, yes. So that, it forces a connection to nature, which we we really enjoy. So in the in terms of the practicalities of this sheep, I think I, I we did talk to Elaine Shirley a little bit about the the. the you know, the raising the sheep, but that's history mostly. Tell us what it's like to raise one of these. Are they fussy? Are they patient? Are they... They're great mothers. The rams, this is our latest one, ram. One and a half year old ram. The rams Young boy. tend to be um, reasonable to handle, very laid back. Yeah, not overly rambunctious. <laughs> um, individuals may vary, but in principle and in general, the rams we've had have been really easy to manage, easy to handle. Um, the weathers are like puppy dogs, follow you anywhere, very food motivated, easy to train. Um, Collar tricks? I, well, I, I do. I mean, I train mine, to, these guys, to be handled a lot because they get handled a lot and they have to go out and behave and, and be polite. Um, the ewes, like I said, great moms. They're very diligent mommies. They're not... Um, and, and they don't scatter. They, yeah, they herd instead of scatter. Well, to a degree, yeah. They're not... Better the, than other breeds that we ran into. They're they're pretty easy. I, say, I find them to be pretty easy to manage. And I find their personalities to be very um, low-key. Do you think that, um, that the meat... Uh, do, I don't know. Do you eat your animals at all? On occasion. Don't say that in front of them. On occasion. Yeah, I have chickens yeah. in my barrel occasion. when they when they leave there. So do do you think that they that in terms of wool and meat characteristics that this sheep is similar to others or different? I or? think they're fabulous. I've had 
Hey, buddy. What was the term? Mean ram stew. We have. Um, that <laughs> and it was, tastes pretty you know, good. Freezer camp. They go to freezer camp. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, six-year-old rams, which in some breeds you might not ever want to eat, that have tasted fantastic. So, yeah, I think the flavor on these animals is really, really good. It's mild. It's not gamey. Um, even, like I said, even in, in most of what would end up in the freezer in our case is going to be a ram that didn't work out. And so, you know, that's going to be the gamiest end of the spectrum, and they're really tasty. So I look at your poster up here, and we'll get a B-roll shot of that. It shows the influences that, that have occurred from this sheep specifically in development of other breeds. Is that right? Yeah. So why is that? Is that just because they figured out how to how to spe specify for trait well, or what? Because he had done such a great job in improving the breed. At Robert Bakewell. And had taken it to something really spectacular. He got written up in all the farm journals across the world. And that word got out. So these rams in particular were, were exported across the globe yeah. to improve sires. other local breeds. In part, and, different characteristics. And whether they were used to specifically develop something new or whether they were just used to improve what was already there. Cotswolds are a very old breed, but these guys were used to help improve that breed. So um, it's not just that it was not necessarily just creating something new, it was improving what was existing. So if there's anything that you wanted to tell the average person about these sheep, about how you connect with them, how they connect with you, what would it be? Just learn that there's more than one kind of sheep out there. And these in particular for us have been a huge connection and just a wonderful addition to our farm family. Um, but I would encourage people to find any breed that they like and look into the idea that they're all very different and they've all bring different characteristics, um, whether you're in it for the fiber or the meat or the milk, whatever it is that you're enjoying about animals, that it's, um, there's a lot of variety out there and it's worth taking a look at. History, nature, textiles, economy, all of that is in this sheet, isn't it? Yeah. One little package. One little well, package. not so little, he's kind of big. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank hey, you both. Thank you very Thanks much. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please ask your friends to join us. Please also feel free to post any comments or questions to our social media sites. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Backyard Green Films. Thanks again for listening. We love to bring you this podcast every week. We visit places all across the country and even a few places outside the U.S. We'd love to keep doing this as long as we can, but holy cow, gas is expensive. So, we've started up a Patreon account. If you'd like to help be a part of the stories you hear, we'd love your support, feedback, and suggestions. If you'd like to make that financial support, please follow the Patreon links in our podcast intro for more information. Every little bit is another mile we can put on the road to bring you the conversations we hope you enjoy. We want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. We would like to thank Kim and Jack for speaking with us today. 
If you'd like to find out more information about their sheep and farm, please visit maplefrostfarm.com. And if you'd like to find tickets and information for this year's festival, please visit sheepandwool.com. We'll see you next week with another adventure. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, all rights reserved, copyright 2021.